Our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Jesus said, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he who makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Jesus here in Matthew 5 is talking about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is what's called in legal terms lex talionis. And it's basically a standard for retaliation, for getting somebody back that was meant to create some system of order in that process. I experienced a version of lex talionis as a high school boy Now, you have to understand that high school boys come up with all manner of way of annoying and inflicting things on each other. For a while, it was, you know, hitting each other when the other guy wasn't looking. Sometimes it's it's some version in middle school was flicking a kid's ear in front of you um, just to annoy them. Um, But at one point in high school, it was the finger in the food game. Now, the finger in the food game went something like this. You'd be sitting at a table, lunch table, McDonald's, next to a friend of yours, and you would say, hey, Johnny, is that your pizza? And your finger would stick into their pizza. Now, why boys would do this, I don't know. Mostly it was because it was disgusting and you wanted to annoy your friend and you thought it was funny. Well, as a high school boy, a junior, I think it was, maybe a senior, I engaged in this with uh, another boy. He was a couple years younger than me. And uh, we were at Friendly's, uh, the ice cream place that used to be in Oakton, after uh, a Young Life event. And I remember going there. We're all sitting around getting stuff. And there was Sean sitting at a table with girls. And so I, of course, wanted to embarrass him or annoy him as much as I could. So I walked up and I said, Sean, is that your burger? And my finger went deep into his hamburger. Disgusting. (laughs) 20 minutes later, Sean without me knowing, comes up behind me, and I had my Snickers ice cream sundae sitting there. And he said, Johnny, is that your ice cream? And his entire hand went into my ice cream, and he began kneading it. (laughs) Now, mind you, the burger was still edible all around the hole that I had made. By the time Sean's hand was done working my ice cream, there was nothing worth touching ever again. Some tit-for-tat, some lex talionis is comical. Other eye-for-an-eye is less comical, of course. History is littered with escalating lex talionis. In 1994, in Rwanda, the Hutu people, the majority, 
in order to seek revenge on the Tutsi peoples who had been in charge for years, began a process of ethnic cleansing and over the course of 100 days, murdered 500,000 to a million people, often with machetes. They were simply getting retaliation for what they saw as years of injustice. Now, an eye for an eye can be taken to extremes or escalated, but it was originally intended as a way to establish law and order. The first recorded uh, instance of it was in Hammurabi's Code, 1700 BC, several hundred years before the Law of Moses. It established a system of retribution so that when somebody poked out another person's eye, they lost their eye. Now, this system in Hammurabi's Code also had built into it social caste systems, meaning this. If you were a wealthy and high caste person and you committed a crime, the penalty was less than if you were a poor person of lower caste. The Jewish law, as it came in under Moses several hundred years later, continued on the idea of an eye for an eye, but instead of just retribution, there was this idea of restitution that was brought into it. So that sometimes it wasn't just um, we're going to kill because there was a kill. Sometimes it was a paying back so that if you killed my cow, it wasn't just we were going to now kill your cows. It was you were going to pay me back cows. The restitution was brought in. And on top of that, the Jewish legal system brought in this idea of equality, whether you were extremely low caste, a poor person, a single woman, or you were a paterfamilias, a head of household, the law was exacted the same for both. So in many ways, an eye for an eye was the establishing of justice and right and law and order. But Jesus comes in and says, an eye for an eye is insufficient. It's not retribution. It's not restitution that I'm after. It's restoration. The restoration of the offender and reconciliation with him. It's to offer grace and, by God's grace, transformation to the offender. Listen to what Jesus says. In verse 39, we read, first he says, you've heard it said it was, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, many people are familiar with this teaching of Jesus. It's one of his most famous. And, and some people ask the question rightly, you know, does this mean if you're physically assaulted that you should just let the person assault you? If somebody storms into your house, you're just going to let them at everyone in your house? And, and if you've heard sermons on this, you know that the idea of turning the other cheek had to do with being offended. So uh, you've probably even seen this before. I'm going to use Matt as an example because he's a great example to use in this one. Now, and if you've seen this before, just bear with me. If you haven't, that's great. But if I wanted to physically assault Matt, the assumption was in that day and age that you're right-handed. And so if I'm physically assaulting Matt, I'm going to punch him. No, no. I'm going to punch him with my right hand. Okay? I'm going to punch him with my right hand. Um, But what they're talking about here was actually a slap, a backhanded slap. So rather than a punch, it's more of that, okay? So it's that. Um, thank you, Matt. That was good. <laughs> the intention was not to physically assault the person. It was to seriously offend them. 
And you have to remember, of course, unlike today, that this was an honor and shame culture. The idea of a backhanded slap was considered the most severe affront to human dignity, especially for a man. It was so severe that if a lower caste person did it to a higher caste person in Hammurabi's system, the the offender's ear was to be cut off in response. Now, we, in a sense, laugh at the whole backhanded slap thing. We've seen one too many cartoons where a glove was taken off and somebody was, you know, instigated into a duel. But it still begs the question, how do we respond when we are offended? How do we respond when we feel slighted or excluded or feel like somebody is accusing us? What I most often observe in myself and others is we we respond with defensiveness when we're accused. We want to get back at somebody if they've slighted or hurt us. Or we ignore them, turn our back on them. Almost all of our responses to offense are forms of self-protection. My youngest son for years has wanted a dog. At Christmas last year, we obliged by getting him a tortoise. (laughs) Very similar to a dog. (laughs) Our tortoise, about this big, named Scooby. Scooby and I went for a walk yesterday. You laugh, but uh, Scooby actually does need exercise, and so I took Scooby outside. I was outside just doing some thinking, walking around. So I took Scooby out into my backyard set him down in the middle of the yard, then walked away because he's scared if you hover over him. Scooby eventually pops his head out, looks around, and he goes to the highest point in the yard, looks around again, sees a tree, and goes to the bottom of the tree and tries to hide under the roots, bury himself there. Well, I wanted him to get exercise, so I picked him up and put him out in the middle of the yard again. Scooby wandered around until he saw the vines that are growing at the edge of our yard close to the fence line. And he charged there as quickly as he could. He wasn't worried about eating. Animals are always worried about eating, but Scooby wanted to get into those vines and bury himself under there as quickly as he could. It is in his nature to preserve himself. And self-protection is the most primal instinct inside of him. And so he goes for safety and defense first, worrying about food later. The question is, of course, are we any better than a tortoise. Jesus, in his words here, says, stop being offended. Stop being offended. What if, what if being respected or not being embarrassed or not always trying to look good, what what if these things were not so important to us? In other words, what if What if I did go around considering myself so important? You know, what we think of as the opposite response to getting ruffled or defensive is is my favorite response. My favorite response to offenses is to act like I don't care. It's sort of along the lines of sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And, And so it's just to ignore offenses, to let them go. 
And it sounds as if I'm doing the mature thing. But in reality, what I'm saying by that is you are not important. The person who is offending me doesn't matter. I will treat them as if they don't exist. Jesus is saying, what if instead of thinking of ourselves as so important or others as not important, what if instead we thought of God as most important? One commentator on Matthew, writing about this passage, said, a disciple who is secure in his status before God can dispense with human honor He doesn't need to avenge offenses because he seeks God's honor and not his own. If you find your status and honor in God, you will seek God's honor and not your own in life. You know, at the root of all of our wrong responses to offense is pride. It's pride that causes us to feel offended or slighted or to be hurt by being excluded. And as we engage in that way of responding, it's a downward spiral. It's a downward spiral spiral of increasing self-pity, of bitterness, of a desire for revenge, of turning inwards on ourselves. So what do we do? How do we respond? if not defensiveness, if not trying to get them back, if not ignoring other people, what does Jesus want us to do? Well, remember, the opposite, the opposite of being offended and seeking revenge is not to ignore an offense. It's to forgive an offense. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying, absorb the offense yourself. Don't hold it against them. Don't demand repayment. I forgive you. I desire to reconcile with you is the response that Jesus is pointing to. And I might respond back, okay, JC, if someone removes a glove and challenges me to a duel, I will forgive them. I mean, come on, it's pretty comical, this idea you're slapped in the face. All right, I give up, you win. Here's my other cheek. But what if you've actually been betrayed in life? What if you have been cheated on by your spouse? What if you have been hurt very badly? And honestly, that type of forgiveness is not easy. There's nothing simple about it. Many of you have heard the story of Corrie ten Boom. And if you have not, Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch girl whose family hid Jews during World War II. Eventually, her family was arrested, and she and her sister were sent to Ravensbrück Camp, one of the Nazi camps. Her sister died there. After the war, Corrie ten Boom became a Christian speaker and an evangelist. And she writes about one particular evening... It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since the war. 
And suddenly it was all there in my mind, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothes as we walked naked into the showers, and my sister, sick and frail and dying in front of me in line. This SS guard came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, and to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. The guard's hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to demand more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Why is forgiving offenses and hurts so hard? On one level, it's because we all have an innate sense of justice. Most often, we don't forgive because we want to be the ones who play the judge. We want to be the ones who get to determine right and wrong. That sense of justice inside of us comes out. And we also have this idea that if we forgive the other person, aren't we just letting them off the hook? We want payback, retribution, and we want to be the ones to execute punishment. Jesus is saying, I am the true judge, and I offer you forgiveness. Now go and do likewise. Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues on as he talks not just about forgiveness, but about a form of generosity that the people listening to him that day were blown away by. Jesus says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So the tunic was your undergarment. Your cloak was your outer garment. So if somebody was going to sue for your undergarment, give them your cloak as well. Basically stand there naked. And you have to understand that the cloak was a very important part of clothing in that first century world. For a poor person, it may be their only possession. It was their protection from the elements. It was what they covered themselves with if they were out on the street for warmth. It was what they used to carry things. It was their bed if they had no other bed. It was so important that in the Old Testament law, a poor person who had no other property could use their cloak as a pledge to fulfill a promise. But the Old Testament law said, if you receive a cloak of a person as a pledge, do not keep it overnight because it may be their only covering. You could symbolically take it as the poor person said, I promise to fulfill my end of the bargain. You take it symbolically and then you hand it back to them because it was their only covering possibly. And Jesus, talking to a crowd that included poor people, said, If somebody sues for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. It's not in order to allow injustice to increase, but it's in order to extend grace, to show the nature of a God who gives and keeps giving. Jesus talks about it another way. He says, you want to talk about generosity? Don't just give them your cloak. But if somebody asks you to go one mile with them, go two miles. 
Now, commentators have made this clear that when you say mile, that was not a Jewish measurement. That was a Roman measurement. And as many of you have heard, if you've heard sermons on this before, the idea of going the extra mile was doing something that a Roman soldier could require of you. You see, Roman soldiers, when they occupied foreign lands, had the right, as Roman soldiers, to requisition property or to conscript people to service. So if they were coming along and they needed a mule and there was your mule, they could take your mule or your cart or your food. And whether you were in in the field or in bed or at the dinner table, they could conscript you to labor. And we have to take a step to remember that when Jesus is talking about Roman soldiers demanding things of these people, this is not like your neighbor, a good friend saying, hey, can you help me? I'm moving this Friday and I need some extra help. This is not a neighbor saying, hey, I'm going to be out of town for a few weeks. Would you mind mowing my grass? This is, this is not a neighbor, a friend. This is the sworn enemy of the people, the oppressing evil army. And Jesus says, if they ask you anything, give them even more. The people listening to Jesus would have said, this is completely unreasonable. This is completely unfair. Every kid who's ever been born has a built-in fairness meter. They're quick to let you know when their fairness radar has been hit. The the interesting thing about all of our built-in fairness meters is that it's all a matter of comparison. We're inevitably comparing ourselves to a sibling or to a neighbor with the one thing being that we get to choose the sample. We get to choose with whom we're comparing. Jesus asks, how far is too far to be generous with your love? If you're going to compare to anybody, compare to me. Jesus calls for extreme generosity. But I wonder what keeps us from being more open-handed and generous with ourselves, with our time, with our possessions, the way Jesus is talking about it. I think there's two things that came to my head. One is that we tend to have an investment mindset when it comes to generosity. The investment mindset is, I will do something nice and good. I will be generous because I'll get paid back. Pay it forward. You know, you'll get paid back in the end. Or at least we will get credit and praise for being generous people. Most often when we show hospitality, we're assuming it's reciprocal. We host some people for dinner. They will then host us. It's why many of us never host anybody. We are all natural-born tally keepers. I had a great example of tally keeping when I was in England. According to English pub culture, tallies are kept. And here's what it goes like. I went with a few friends to the pub. And the way that it works when you go to the pub is you go up to the counter and order some drinks. But the way that it works if you go with a few other friends is one of you goes up to the pub, the pub counter and orders drinks for everybody. So one guy goes up and orders drinks. We all come back and have a drink. That guy is not going to move when all the glasses are empty. He's going to wait for the next guy to go. And if you get through only two out of four guys that time that you're at the pub, and you come back a month later, the English are very good at remembering who bought last time and who didn't. 
I learned that the hard way. I just thought it was generosity to an American. But there they were waiting for my generosity back. You and I are no different. We all keep tallies of wrongs, of our generosity. It's what every wife does with her husband. We men don't do that sort of thing. We don't keep tallies of how we've been wronged, of the times we've unloaded the dishwasher, come home early, stayed up late, got up with the kids. We don't do that. We just get revenge. We either are looking to make investments with our generosity or we think about our stuff as ours. That's the other thing that keeps us from being generous in the way that Jesus is talking about is we have an ownership mentality. This is my cloak, my time that I'm giving to go that extra mile, my money, my effort, my resources. And Jesus is saying, what if instead you recognized how little you can really control and who really owns all things? Your time, it's your time you're sacrificing? How many years do you have left on this earth? Are you really in control? It's really your house, your money, your investments, your car that you worked really hard You got all of that because of all of your labor, your intelligence, your good choices? What if you had the same intelligence, the same good choices, the same work ethic, but you were born in the Sudan? Would you still have as much stuff? Probably not. Miroslav Volf, who's a Yugoslavian professor, wrote a book about giving and forgiving and the need to recognize that everything we have is really God's. He says, if God were to stop giving, we would stop existing. Absolutely everything that is not God owes its existence to God. See, true giving, true giving comes from knowing the giver of all things. This is not self-serving generosity, the idea of I'll get paid back or, or people will give me credit for being generous or at least I'll feel good about myself. True giving, the way Jesus is talking about it, comes from the heart of a worshiper who is worshiping God, who is the giver, and desires to share him with others. The mindset that Jesus is talking about is it's not your money or your time or your cloak that you're giving, it's God that you're giving to that person. Jesus says, forgive, give, and love. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In that day and age, There was nothing in the Old Testament that said hate your enemies, but in the Jewish culture of that day, a neighbor was very narrowly defined as a fellow Jew, a fellow member of the covenant community. It did not include people from Samaria or Greeks or Roman soldiers. And Jesus says, but I say love, pray for even your enemies. Now, we may not have literal enemies in this world, but there's the type of 
there's either actual people in our life that we hold grudges or unforgiveness towards, competitors. It could be a parent or a spouse or an ex. It, it could be a, a coworker or a boss. And there's also the types of people that we consider enemies, the kind of people we just don't like. For some of us, it's like the Fox News watching, NRA card carrying people. And for others of us, it's the NPR listening Prius drivers. We have these ideas of the sorts of people that we just don't like. And Jesus says, yes, even them, love them, pray for them. And basically, praying for them is the opposite of wishing them ill. It's seeking the best for them. It's being able to rejoice with them when they get pregnant and you can't, when they get married and you're still not, when their kid makes the team and yours is struggling, when they get the promotion and that kitchen redo, and you're just trying to make ends meet. It's to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and pray for God's best in their life. You see, Jesus has an aim in all of this. His aim in all of this is to make a neighbor out of an enemy. Not just love those who love you, not just love those who deserve it, but to love even them. Never be offended or defensive. Keep giving. Always forgive. Love people outside of our circles. Desire restoration, not retaliation. Make neighbors of enemies. Go the extra mile. Give your cloak. Turn the other cheek. Who does this? course Jesus did, right? Jesus' cheek was betrayed with a kiss. His face was shamefully beaten, and he turned and gave them his back and his arms as well. Jesus gave up his tunic and his cloak and hung naked. Jesus bore the cross and carried all of our burdens the extra mile. Jesus suffered offense and injustice and exclusion and punishment for our sins. And yet from the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. The only place that we can get to where we can find the ability to be generous and forgiving and loving like this when we recognize that God generously gave his son, that Jesus generously gave himself, that we are completely forgiven and infinitely loved in Christ. Jesus concludes this whole section by saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect doesn't mean be really, really good. The word there is telos or teleos. It means completion, maturity, goal, finish, In other words, to be extremely generous and continually forgiving and and loving of even our enemies is to be who we were created to be. It is our end, our goal. It's how we were made. It's also how we experience and enjoy God's love completely. Corey Ten Boom continues on with her story. She writes, 
And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart as this SS soldier was standing there with arm extended. But I remember that forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. And so I prayed silently in my head, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one outstretched towards me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, racing down my arm. It sprang into our joined hands. And then this warmth and healing seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And I cried out, I forgive you, my brother. With all my heart, I forgive you. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. And the former SS guard and the former prisoner were embraced. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Do you want to be complete? Do you want to know the completion of God's love for you? Then love as Christ has loved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you left your Father's throne above so free and infinite your grace. You emptied yourself of everything but love. You bled for our helpless race. It's mercy, immense and free. And oh God, may it find us this morning, this amazing love that you would die for us. May we live from that place of completion, extending love and mercy as we have received it. Amen.